Let me go ahead and pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you reveal yourself to be here. We pray that we would be faithful women who walk in obedience to you, all in your strength. Would you give us soft, teachable hearts before you now? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, ladies. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Today we will be reading in Psalm 1, as we remember the disciplines. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now to Psalm 1. We see an example of discipline 1. A heart meditating on God's word produces spiritual vitality. Psalm 1 reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Have you ever seen a tree torn out of the ground after a summer monsoon? Perhaps some branches torn off and thrown into the road? A tree has a structure of an above-ground portion, the trunk, the branches, the leaves, the fruit. There is, however, an underground, unseen portion. It is perhaps the most important part that we cannot see. Its roots. The health of the tree tells you a lot about what's going on below ground. A good water source allows trees to grow extensive, deep, vigorous, and healthy roots. Some kinds of trees will even seek water in the ground as if they can smell it or search it out. They will upturn pavers to get to it. Those of us who live in the desert know how important it is for plants to have water. I really enjoy taking care of my garden and my plants need me so desperately to care for them and water them or they shrivel up quickly. It's helpful to remember the role water plays in that as we look closer at this passage. In this verse in Psalm 1, we see a tree well planted near water. It has all it needs. It is healthy and luscious, bearing fruit in its season, On the other hand, not having enough water, and consistently so, causes roots to grow puny near the surface. It can't anchor the tree underground. It doesn't have as much access to nutrients at the surface. And finally, it causes the tree to be weak, brittle, and unhealthy. When pressure is applied from a storm, it can snap and break, or it can altogether come out of the ground. We see the one situated near and deep in God's word is like a sturdy tree that does not wither. They do bear fruit. They do not become uprooted in a windstorm. In contrast, the worldly evil one blows away like chaff.
the psalmist is meditating on the portion of scripture he has at the time, the law. And he's doing so constantly. It comes out in how he walks. I don't know about you, but when I'm doing this, I can see strength, resilience, and fruit way beyond myself. When I'm being lazy, lacking discipline to do good, fruitful things with my time, I look less fruitful, less healthy and resilient and useful to the Lord. I have less to nourish others with when I'm being weak myself. I have less to help others with when I'm needing this remedy from Psalm 1. God's word puts on display this beautiful picture, a resilient, cultivated tree by flowing waters. It represents something remarkable. There is a comparison with how trees grow to our spiritual life. When we bring our hearts before God and his word with a heart of prayerful humility, ready to sing his thoughts after him throughout our day, we have all we need to walk faithfully in him in the storms that will come. The trials. We may sway but not break. The blessed one is not the one who has no difficulty, but the one looking to God in the midst of the inevitable trials coming. The seasons of the year bring different weather, some adverse, some calm, as implied by this passage. But yet for this one, not a leaf withers, and it bears fruit as well. Let's see what caused this. Verse 1 shows us what a truly blessed or happy one looks like. They're not being saturated with the world's advice or walking along with it. But this one is different from the world. What are they doing instead? They keep themselves purposefully from worldly advice or activities. The blessed one has their heart focused on God and his word, meditating on it day and night. And this is their delight. Is this you? If you're a believer and not feeling like this healthy tree, would you consider taking deeper drinks from God's word and see what the Lord may do according to this passage? Meditate on God's word. Consider where you are taking an advice of those who hate God. Consider where you are walking and talking like the world instead of thinking God's thoughts in your heart throughout your day. Our discipline one. There is then a shift here in verse 4 when describing someone different altogether, the wicked. This one is like chaff that blows away. This one has coming judgment. The wind comes and tests this one too, but completely blows them away. Let us not desire to be like them or have their ways. The believer will stand because God is securing us forever with the stability he gives us in himself. He is the one who planted us. He is the one holding the believer. Unless he were doing so for us in Jesus, we would all likewise perish. As we wake up every day, may we remember what will nourish our inward, unseen parts, our heart health. It's the Bible. And we have so much more to dwell on than the psalmist had at this time. This passage is about how the child of God finds security in God in the midst of this dark and difficult world and perseveres. What will produce fruit in your life and make you faithful, believer, is drinking deeply from the precious word of God 
and then pour into the life of those around you. Let's turn our binders over and read the three disciplines. Discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular, the gospel. Discipline two, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Discipline three, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others for God and the gospel. Wow, Heather, thank you. Um, what you shared, obviously you wouldn't know how well it fits into our lesson today. Um, most of what I'm going to be sharing will... Sorry. I used to be able to talk and do some, put in my password at the same time, but I can't anymore. Um <clears throat> You're going to hear so much so often this morning about feeding our hearts, shepherding our hearts with God's word um, so that it bears the kind of fruit that God tells us that we need to bear. So thank you. What a, what a great word picture to be thinking about as we consider our lesson this morning. So we're going to be going um, to looking at the book of Titus this morning. So if you would go ahead and turn there. Um, as Smed mentioned uh, the first week that we met for Wellspring, Titus 2, 3 through 5 is a unique passage that addresses women in the church. In fact, it's the only place in scripture that tells us specifically what women's ministries with one another must be. And that's why this passage is at the core of women's ministries at Grace Bible Church. When Sarah Demarest was here a few, week, a few weeks ago, she touched on this passage just a little bit. But this morning, we're going to really um, zoom in and carefully look at these verses so that we grow in our understanding of them and also in our application of them. And so to best do that, I think we need to look at it in context. So let's first consider why Paul wrote this letter to Titus. In chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us that the churches in Crete needed to be set in order. So we can conclude that they were out of order. That's why Titus was there. When Paul left Crete, he knew that the work there wasn't complete. There were people who were not growing in sanctification. Some were looking more like the culture rather than those who were separated from the world. They didn't understand the gospel's implications for godly living and a believer's witness to the world, and it affected the church. Therefore, these churches needed to be put in order, and Paul makes it clear what was needed to put them in order. First, they needed elders, and verses 5 through 9 address that. And then starting in verse 10, we see Paul described a problem in the churches when he wrote, there were rebellious men who said they knew God, but they denied him by their actions, by the way that they lived. And these rebellious men were influencing others. Households were being thrown into confusion. 
because these men were teaching things that they should not have been teaching. There was unsound teaching and ungodly living, and it shouldn't surprise us that it, that it would have resulted in disorder. So Paul wrote to, to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for, for sound doctrine. Unsound teaching must be corrected with sound teaching, with sound doctrine. And the church must be instructed how to live in light of that sound doctrine. And that's what we see in chapter in uh, verses 2 through 10. Paul here addresses men, women, and slaves. He's addressing everyone in the church, helping all to see that the true believer must think and live in such a way that their lives bear the fruit of God's transforming grace. And Paul and uh, Paul then describes that grace beginning in verse 11. Now, as I read it, notice what grace does. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And he's giving a category here, meaning all kinds of people. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us, that is to set us free from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So what we see in in these verses is that God's grace saves us, and his grace instructs us to live in a way that reflects what he has accomplished for us. It is God's grace. Did you notice that it says that? That means it is his to define, and he clearly does that here. God's grace is twofold. It saves us, and it instructs us how we are to live as his redeemed people. And grace's instructions include both what we are to put off, verse 12 uses the word deny, as well as what we are to put on. It tells us how we are to live. God's grace instructs us to put on sensible, righteous, holy living. And Titus 2, 3 through 5 spells out in detail what that includes in the life of a believing woman. So thinking about what God's grace, how it instructs us to live, Keeping that in mind, I'm going to read now Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So we see from this passage that grace-directed living is necessary for grace-directed relationships. And both of these are essential for a healthy, in-order, God-glorifying church. Next on your outline, you'll see the summary of our passage. The word of God is on is honored through gospel-transformed older women, 
training gospel-transformed younger women. Now, as we go through these verses, we're going to look at each of the qualities that are listed here. But before we do, we need to know why they are important. So the summary of our passage points to it. We find the why at the end of verse 5. We are to obey these instructions given to us so that the word of God will not be dishonored. God's word was being dishonored in Crete. Some were neglecting and even rejecting the authority of God's word. Verse 14 tells us that they were paying attention to other worthless things rather than submitting themselves under the word of God. Their minds and consciences were corrupted. They were living in impurity and disobedience. But for those of us who have been changed by the gospel, we have the responsibility and the privilege to protect the, the word of God from dishonor through our obedience. Now, this word dishonor is the same word as blaspheme. We blaspheme when we take that which is God-honoring and holy and say or do things that make it appear less holy and less God-honoring. We can either bring God's ways down in the eyes of the world, or we can live in such a way that holds his ways high, that displays them for the world to see just how marvelous they are. So we need to look at verses 3 through 5 in light of what we are protecting. We want to hold high God's word. We want to hold high his ways because faithful obedience to these instructions influence how others think about God's word. And so we need to look at his calling for women in the church and embrace it, knowing what's at stake. We need our hearts to be eager to fulfill the role God has given to us as women in the church. This is how we strengthen the church, by pouring into other women. Our church needs us to understand our God-given roles as women. And this passage helps us see that other women need us, and we need other women. These instructions are deliberate. They are God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives, so that we can encourage one another, and so that households are protected. We encourage one another so that our church is strengthened, so that we give the world no reason to discredit God's word, to discredit the gospel. This passage helps us understand the kind of women we are to be and how we are to encourage one another. So let's look at the outline, Roman numeral one. What older transformed by the what older women transformed by the gospel must be. <clears throat> Paul begins with older women likewise. Now, older women likely refers to someone probably in their 50s or 60s, women whose children are grown. Now, some of you started really early, so you're going to fall into this category earlier, when the demands of our household are not as great. He then tells us who we must be, and what we must do. This is God's will for us. 
God has designed this women, this season for older women for a very specific purpose. This is not a, not a time to step back, not a time to focus on ourselves. Instead, God instructs us to be godly women who purposefully invest in helping younger women in our church to live out the work of God's grace in their lives. Now, though this is specifically written to older women, I do believe that it has an implication for all women. Older is a relative term. Everyone is older than someone. And while it's true that most older women have more opportunity for pouring into younger women because of the season of life that they're in, all of us can be doing this to some degree with those who are younger, either in age or in their faith. At the same time, it is also true that all of us need to be teachable younger women, no matter our age, as we learn from other women and let them spur us on in our walk with the Lord. Many of you in this room who are younger than me have taught me so much as I have watched you live out the gospel, live in a, in a godly way. And I so appreciate that. We have opportunities to build these kinds of relationships in many ways in the church. It could be with women with whom we serve. A lot of ministry can take place while you are holding babies together in the nursery or serving together in next gen. We can build these kinds of relationships in our small groups um, <clears throat> as well as here and in Wellspring. This also can take place in such practical ways. I don't know if all of you older women know, but there's a young moms group that gets together. I think, is it every other week? Okay. Um, I just want to encourage you older women, what a great opportunity to join them, to join in their homes, in the park, whatever fun thing they do, and just encourage them in their season of life. It may seem informal to you, but I think it would be so helpful and encouraging to the younger women at, that, at this church. We also have a mentoring ministry for women. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or younger woman. If this is something you're interested in, you can come and talk to me um, after class today. Um, I also put my email address at the end of the outline. Um, so you can just email me there. There are applications for both to, to mentor and to be mentored out on the table this morning. So you can grab one of those if you're interested in that. But we need to be looking for ways to cultivate these kinds of relationships. So let's look at the characteristics that are listed in these verses. And as we do, I want to encourage everyone here, whether you would consider yourself an older woman or a woman who's younger, to still, no matter what stage you are in, to pay attention. Because we need to remember that these kinds of qualities are developed over time. This is the fruit of women, who, of a woman who is growing in her love for God and his word. This is something we grow into. It doesn't automatically come with age. It is the result of heart shepherding over years. And so whatever season you're in, now is the time to be growing into this kind of a woman. 
So let's look at what kind of women we must be. The character qualities of gospel-transformed women is described in four ways. She is reverent in her behavior. She's not a malicious gossip. She's not enslaved to much wine. And she teaches what is good. These qualities are necessary for effective ministry with younger women. Being older women with these qualities is what makes us effective in strengthening our church. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we in any way have arrived, but it does mean that we are on a consistent path of shepherding our hearts with God's word to be women who live obediently under the grace of God. And we're growing in that. We're maturing in our faith, no matter when that faith began. I know that I have really had to fight the temptation to think that I'm not qualified to pour into a younger woman. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wasn't saved until I was an adult. And I know that I have failed in so many ways because I didn't always have a good biblical understanding of what God's word says about being a wife and about being a godly mother. And yet, I know that God can use those things as well. I can be honest and help warn younger women because I know what a lack of biblical understanding can produce. So, failure in the past in an area doesn't have to disqualify us. God can use those failures as we pour into younger women and as we continue to grow in these qualities. So, what does it mean to be reverent in behavior? The word reverent refers generally to honoring God. It is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple, being fully devoted to service. It carries the idea of being set apart and holy. The woman who is reverent understands that her whole life is set apart and devoted to her calling. This season of her life is to be one of devotion to her God as she fully embraces his design for her life as an older woman. It's what's described in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this kind of attitude must be cultivated. Being reverent doesn't just happen because we age. Rather, it flows from drawing near to God through his word in all seasons of life and letting the truths of his word saturate our hearts. And we press on and we grow in reverent love for God. And the overflow of it impacts every area of our lives. Psalm 119.38 says, Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. God's word is established to us as we humble ourselves under the whole counsel of his word. And so we feed our hearts with his word and we fix our minds on the things of the Lord, yielding ourselves to him in obedience and trust and doing all things as an act of worship to him. Not just in our quiet times or when we're at church, but always, even when no one is watching. 
This is God's call for all of his people. We are all to deny ungodliness and live lives of worshipful obedience. But an older woman is to be exemplary in this so that we can encourage other women to worshipfully follow Christ in all that they do. Now, this first quality, being reverent in behavior, may be functioning like an, over, like an overarching quality. Paul may be saying that we must be reverent in behavior, and then he goes on to show us what that looks like. He states three other, three other areas of the older women's life that is to be under control. So number two on your outline says <clears throat> that we are not to be um, malicious gossips. So the first thing that he addresses is having control over our tongue. The Greek word for malicious gossips is translated as slanderers in the English Standard Version. It is the adject, excuse me, it is the adject form of diablos and is used 34 times in the New Testament for the devil himself, the one who accuses and slanders us before God. Slander is literally diabolical. When we gossip and slander, we are speaking against others. We represent others in a negative light, putting them down with the intent of causing others to think less of them and probably with the intention of having them think more of us. And we can be guilty of slander in what we say, in what we post online, in what we share with other people, um, as well as in what we listen to. We need to be careful to not listen to any of those kinds of things. We need to understand that slander or speaking against another reveals pride in our hearts, a heart that has exalted itself not only above others, but also against God and his word. It reflects a heart that is judging others rather than humbly acknowledging that God alone is judge of all. And I think you have um, James 4, 11 through 12. Did that get on your outline? Okay, we're not going to read it now, but I want you to circle it, and that's part of your homework. It gives such great insight into understanding that God is judge alone. And so as grace instructs us to put off this ungodliness, we need to put on an attitude of humility toward others. When we understand that God alone is the righteous judge and that the only reason we don't have to fear his judgment is because of the mercy that he extends to us through the gospel, then our words will reflect that. They will be gracious and humble and merciful. We will seek to highlight evidences of God's grace in others rather than only highlighting their weaknesses and their sin. Slander is sin, regardless of who is doing it. But again, older women must be especially careful. It is absolutely necessary for the ministry God has given to us to pour, as we pour into younger women. And that brings us to number three on the outline. Older women are not to be enslaved to much wine. This means that we must not be mastered by alcohol, 
The older woman is to be self-controlled in her habits. Now, God's word doesn't forbid wine, but we must be careful not to be enslaved to it. That's the emphasis here. On the, it is on the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. And clearly, that was a problem for the women in um, the churches on Crete. And still, today, many turn to alcohol as an escape. The reality, however, is that alcohol can enslave those who are trying to escape through it. And alcohol isn't the only thing that enslaves when it is used as a means of escape or comfort. It could be food, it could be all kinds of electronic distractions, or spending, or exercise, and the list could go on and on. We are in danger of bondage if we turn to anything other than the Lord to help us cope. Many of these things can be enjoyed with self-control and thankfulness as good gifts from God, but God himself is to be the believer's comfort. He is our refuge, and true joy is found in him alone. We cannot help other women discover that that all they need is Christ if we ourselves are not convinced that he is everything that we need. And then finally, number four, older women are to teach what is good, what is beneficial. This is the effect of godliness, a life that is set apart for God. This kind of woman is to pass on what God has so faithfully taught her. Now, to teach here doesn't necessarily imply that she has a formal teaching gift or a formal platform to teach. But when she does speak, what comes out of her mouth is biblical wisdom. Proverbs 31, 26 says she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She speaks from God's word. This means that we use every opportunity that we have to teach what is good as women, we have an opportunity to influence the families and households of our church. And so we must be diligent to be a good and beneficial influence. We need to teach younger women to obey these verses and not be influenced by the culture who isn't speaking God's truth. We are equipped to do this with God's word, and that means we must know it. And that brings us to Roman numeral two on the outline. What transformed older women must train the younger women to be. Verse four begins with, so that they may encourage the young women. Older women are to have these character qualities so that they can fulfill their role in the church by encouraging younger women. This is God's calling for us as older women. As women, we have the special privilege of helping young women by modeling and teaching godliness of life. Now, that word encourage is also translated train or instruct or urge. And it's interesting that even the word encourage carries the idea of instructing someone to think wisely, to be sober-minded and self-controlled over their passions and desires. It is related to the word sensible used throughout the book of Titus. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it this way, so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility. 
Sensibility carries the idea of sound mind. Just as an older woman is to be self-controlled in her tongue and careful and wise in what she runs to, so younger women are to learn from older women to be self-controlled in their thinking and in every part of their lives. And what are older women to encourage, to instruct the younger women, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, as we go through what the young women need to be trained in, we need to acknowledge that all of these are important. There's nothing here that indicates that some might be negotiable or optional or even less important. And though the first two qualities address specifically those who are married and have children, it also has implications for all women and that Paul is addressing first the household relationships. It's important that we understand God's design in them. Understanding this priority strengthens the church. If someone isn't married, they can still let this passage inform how they think about and understand how God values marriage so that they can encourage their married friends to love their husbands as they learn about God's design for love in marriage. Older women are to teach the younger women to love her husband. In the Greek, it's literally to be a husband lover, and it describes who a woman is, not just what she does. And it's based on God's will, not on a husband's worthiness. When Paul wrote these words, marriages were arranged. And so you can imagine how a woman needed to be trained in loving her husband. And although marriages today are based on personal choice and love, it is still a kind of love that needs to be learned. This kind of love isn't natural or intuitive. Rather, it is based on God's unconditional love for us. Psalm 103 describes God's unconditional love. Again, we don't have time to read that now, but there's another one to circle for your homework. His love is immeasurable. It is full of grace. It is full of forgiveness and compassion. And because we have the example of his love and the power as new creations in Christ, in Christ, that is the kind of love that we are able to give. We don't have to earn God's affections, so we must not make our husband earn our affection. God doesn't wait until we are worthy to love, so we must give freely unconditional love to our husbands. God loves us when we are stubborn and disobedient, so we love our husbands even when we feel that he's let us down. A married woman has the privilege of lavishing God's grace on her husband. The word for love here carries the idea of being a friend to her husband. So we have the opportunity to learn what is important to him, to learn his preferences, to listen to him, 
and encourage him, we learn how to be a suitable helper to our own husbands and not compare him to others. Loving your husband is first in the list of good things that older women are to teach the younger women and younger women are to learn. And after our relationship with the Lord, our husband is to be first in our affections and our priorities. We need to give our husbands the best that we have. And that can be challenging when children have many immediate needs. And yet, we need to keep a tender heart for our husband and love him with this kind of love. We never take a break. Our tone, our demeanor, our thoughts, our words, all should express this kind of affection. This is a kind of love that puts God's work in us on display. It points to him. This is not a love that we wake up every morning naturally ready to give. Our natural bent is to love ourselves, isn't it? But when we draw near to God in his word, dependent on him, he renews and strengthens us to love like he loves. Older women, this is what we continue to strive for and how we are to encourage the younger women. Next, older women are to encourage young women to love their children or to be children lovers. Although the most, the most obvious application is to mothers, we all have the responsibility to love and cherish children. And if you haven't noticed, there are a lot of children to love and cherish around here at Grace Bible Church. Um, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, so as with loving our husbands, this is a love which must be learned because it is also modeled after God's love for us. It is selfless. Now, you would think that this kind of love would come naturally, um, and most mothers do have a natural affection for their children. <clears throat> but that can be strained at 1 a.m. when you're exhausted, either because your little ones are still awake or because the older ones are not home yet. <laughs> mothers can easily become discouraged. We can lose sight of the influence God has designed for us to have on our children. And so we need to remember that loving children is a priority. We need to be viewing mothering not as an inconvenience, but as a privilege and as a pleasure. Remembering that we are providing an environment where children can learn the things of God. Our unselfish service, <clears throat> excuse me, as we meet their needs day after day, is the perfect setting to communicate to them the selfless love of God. And so we must persevere to love our children, not with a natural affection only, but with a biblical one. This means you don't neglect reproof and correction where necessary. You train them in God's ways, caring for their soul as well as their physical needs. And this needs to be done with patience, kindness, and a firm commitment, not being surprised or annoyed that children need parenting. And older women, we need to remind younger women that they are playing an important role 
in raising the next godly generation. We want to keep that before them. Their work has eternal value. And that brings us to sensible. We've already touched on this. Sensibility deals primarily with the mind or thought life. It means not running to the edges of extremes in our thinking, but rather striving for reserved, balanced thinking that is not easily moved off center. It's giving each situation its proper weight, not too much and not too little. It's being self-controlled in our thoughts and emotions. It's submitting our thoughts to God's thoughts as he is revealed to us in his word. Both our thoughts about things that are going on right now, as well as thoughts about what could possibly happen in the future. Our hearts are easily deceived and we can easily, and they can easily lead us away from thinking what is true and right. We can easily be driven by emotion rather than trust in God. Now, emotions are not necessarily evil, but we must not allow us to allow them to master us. They were never designed to rule us. We do not need to be enslaved to our emotions. God has given us a spirit of sound mind. We can use self-control in our thinking. By his grace, we can renew our minds with his word and let it direct our thoughts and be sensible viewing our circumstances through the lens of God's word so that we protect his word from being dishonored. And that brings us to pure. Pure means clean, spotless, morally pure in all ways. It's an inward purity that directs all of our outward choices. Purity has the idea of being unpolluted. We need to cultivate an unpolluted, pure affection for the Lord, rejecting and turning away from everything that competes for our affections, which rightly belong only to our Savior. And when our affections for him are pure, the overflow of that will be purity in our thoughts and desires, our words and our actions, our relationships. It will guide what we allow into our eyes and our ears and even how we dress. So how do we cultivate purity? God's word tells us that we are to eagerly anticipate his return. Listen to what 1 John 3, 2 through 3 says. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, of seeing him again, purifies himself just as he is pure. The confidence that we will see him one day makes us want to purify ourselves. It is gospel promises like these that we use to shepherd our hearts. We meditate on these verses so that our pursuit our, so that our, excuse me, that our purity points to our Savior's purity and our anticipation of seeing him face to face. And then the next thing listed is workers at home. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household. A woman who understands the value 
of the work and the relationships and the opportunities that she has in her home. This is a work that is done out of love and obedience to our Savior. The word here is actually an adjective, so you could say that we are home-working women. It describes the kind of women we are to be in Christ. And again, it must be learned. An older woman must be an example to the younger of how to keep a priority on being a worker at home. And it's no more optional than any of the other qualities listed in these verses, no matter our age or our stage. God's work for us in our home has purpose in every season of life. And God's word is dishonored if we neglect this. All of the relationships in our home are a priority in this work, honoring others above ourselves, being the aroma of Christ, and cultivating conversations that make much of the Lord. Whether it's people you live with, like your immediate family or roommates, or even people who visit your home, working in our homes allows our home to be useful in ministering to others. Another priority in this, work, in this work is serving and managing our homes to help them run smoothly. Often, it includes meeting needs, preparing meals, washing clothes, cleaning. And so it might be helpful to organize space and time so that life goes more smoothly for those in our home. In some seasons, the work of the home is so demanding that there's very little time or energy for anything else, even for other good things. In other seasons, the demands are lighter and we have more opportunity to serve others. There are also reasons when it might be appropriate for a woman to not only be a worker at home, but also in the workplace to be employed in some way. But that needs to be given careful, thoughtful consideration to how we can be faithful workers at home, even when we are also working outside the home. If we're married, we need to be praying and talking with our husbands to have wisdom and unity in these decisions so that we are protecting our role as workers in our home and embracing and valuing this role as God does. If we are not denying worldliness in our thinking as grace instructs us to do, then we may actually resent this role. Even if we understand the good of being a worker at home, we can easily, be, we can easily fall prey to laziness or discontentment. You can be home and yet not be a worker at home. And so again, renewing your mind throughout each day with the truths of God's word is where the battle for faithful diligence and contentment in our service is won. And being a worker in our home is a wonderful opportunity for offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God is the one who prepared the work he has for us. He is the one we are serving, and he is the one who supplies his abundant grace to be a joyful, diligent worker at home. And that brings us to kind. 
<clears throat> this is a kindness or goodness that comes from the heart and then overflows into words and actions that benefit others. It is an eagerness to do good to others, showing kindness with our words, our tone, and even our facial expressions. And we need to take note that this comes right after being a worker at home. Sadly, our homes are often the place where we are careless about being kind. When we are not kind, it reveals what we truly value. It could be convenience or respect or control over our schedules. It can even reveal what we value that we, that, excuse me, it can even reveal that we value maybe something good. But when those things we value become idols of our heart, we are sinning against the Lord and we need to repent not only of our unkind words and selfish actions, but most importantly, of loving or valuing something so much that we are willing to sin against our Savior by being unkind to others. And so again, we renew our minds, we shepherd our hearts with the gospel, where we behold the kindness of God, Passages like Titus 3, 3 through 7, help us see how God responded to our foolishness and disobedience with kindness that is completely undeserved. <clears throat> it says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, but... When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's his kindness that enables us to be kind, even when others are not. And so each day we go to his word and we remind ourselves of his kindness to us and then reflect his kindness in how we treat others. And finally, number seven, being subject to their own husbands. Being subject means to submit Literally, it means to arrange ourselves under. This means that we are to voluntarily, without resentment, line ourselves under the authority God has ordained for us. In this case, our husbands. Turn to Ephesians 5, 22. Uh, excuse me, Ephesians 5, yeah, verses 22 and 23. We're going to look at that just real quickly. This passage helps us see um, better, to better understand God's design in submission. And it's just so helpful because it shows us that, it shows us that our role in marriage, the husband as head of the, as head of the wife and the wife submitting to her husband, are pointing to something greater. They're actually pointing to something eternal. Verse 22 begins with, wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. Now notice that phrase, as to the Lord. 
The Lord is our master. He is the one we trust as we submit to our husbands. For that reason, we submit lovingly and joyfully, regardless of our husband's spiritual condition or leadership. We do it out of obedience to Jesus. Verse 23 continues, For the husband is a head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject, is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. The role of both the husband and the wife are designed to paint a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. The husband's role gives a picture of Christ's self-giving leadership and care for the church, and a wife's submission to her husband paints a picture for the world to see the church's submission to Jesus. And how does the church do that? We as a church submit to Jesus with wholehearted trust and joy. The church submits to Jesus in everything, not selectively, not with resentment or complaining, but with gratitude. That is what we get to communicate through our submission to our husbands. It's not that our husbands are perfect like Jesus, but rather submitting to our husbands aims to show the same joy and love that the church shows in her submission to Jesus. As a wife, we approach that with a submissive attitude using self-control and patience as we support our husband's leadership. Now, it doesn't mean that we never share our insights where it might be helpful for our husband to lead our family in honoring the Lord, but we do it in a way that is thoughtful about the timing and the tone of our conversations. And regardless of how it is received, we need to be ready, we need to be humble and ready to follow, even when our preferences are different from our husband's. Now certainly, if you're married, you all know this isn't always easy. Marriage is the union of one sinner to another sinner. Husbands aren't always good leaders, just like we are always good followers. If our husbands want us to sin, now obviously we have to humbly and respectfully decline. But in all of this, we aim for unity, to show the union of Christ and his church. Verse 33 says, And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. That word respect helps us to see that submission is not just a matter of what we say and do. It is a matter of the heart. It is a choosing on the heart level to respect our husbands because of the role that the Lord has sovereignly given to him in our lives. And so we need to, res we need to submit respectfully, not with a cold shoulder or pouting or irritation, not with self-righteousness or contentiousness, but with genuine respect in our attitude and expression. Submission is a heart attitude, which, which we must be ready for each day. And how do we do that? Again, we do it by drawing near to God in his word, because that is where we see God's trustworthiness, so that we can entrust ourselves to him and his design for us to submit to our husbands. 
And as all of these qualities, we need other godly women to help us, to teach us how to submit in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. And that brings us to number three. What happens when transformed women follow God's design? Titus 2, 3 through 5 shows the effects of women helping one another live Christ-exalting lives. Throughout the lesson, we have pointed to God's purpose for this so that the word of God will not be dishonored. It's helpful to think of this as concentric, concentric circles. It's like throwing a petal in the middle of a pond and the ripples come out from it. The very center is the impact that God's word has on our own hearts so that it impacts us all day long, beginning in our homes and then expands into the church where women help one another grow. And as we do that, God's word is honored and the church is strengthened and God is glorified. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that your word is so clear. Father, we see so clearly in this, these verses your role that we have as women in the church. And Father, what a privilege it is to be pouring into one another, to be helping one another. Father, I pray that we will be faithful to be looking for those opportunities to pour into one another's lives and that we will do it in such a way that we will display what the work of your gospel has done in our lives. Father, thank you that you don't send us into the church to do this um, where we are trying to do it in our own strength. But Father, you give us everything that we need to be able to pour effectively into one another's lives. And Father, thank you that you don't merely tell us what we are to do, how, how we are to, who we are to be, how we're to live. But Father, you in your kindness give us the reason so that your word is not dishonored. Father, I pray that each one of us will take that to heart, that when we are tempted to perhaps disobey or disregard any of the things that you so clearly point out in your word, that we will remember what's at stake. And Father, out of our love for you, that we will choose to be obedient. We will choose to shepherd our hearts to be the kind of women that you can use so that your word will be honored. And I just thank you so much for the women here. Father, I pray that as they discuss in uh, their discussion groups this morning as, and as they work on, on their homework, Father, that they will truly seek you and that you will show all of us where we need to grow and how we can be more effective in the role that you have sovereignly called us to. And so, Father, we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.